Welcome to Classic Lutheran Preaching, C.F.W. Walther. C.F.W. Walther was a parish pastor, later professor and first president of Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. He was also the first president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. These sermons were preached from 1840 to 1870, predominantly in congregations of the St. Louis area. Unfortunately, we do not know the specific dates and locations of most of these sermons as they have been lost to time. These sermons were originally preached and published in German and translated by Donald Heck. They're available in two volumes from Concordia Publishing House, St. Louis, Missouri, cph.org. Thank you for listening. The second Sunday after Christmas, Matthew 2, 13 to 23. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Greetings in our Savior, dearly beloved hearers. If we inquire how it happens that the precious gospel of Christ is preached to so many who do not wholeheartedly receive it anyhow, do not cling completely to Christ and would rather remain in their sins, what would we find? A very common reason is the belief that clinging to Christ means losing too much. If a distinguished man were to cling to that despised Christ, he thinks, should I give up the respect and great honor that I have generally employed and despised him now on as a fool, a devotee, an enthusiast? No, I can never do that. I would lose too much. He If he who preciously planned day and night how he could become rich, if he has already seen his earthly wealth increase, if he should now give up all trying to become rich and seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, he thinks, how can I let go of all these wonderful opportunities for becoming rich honorably and for Christ's sake be satisfied with no more than food and clothing? Oh, no, this loss would be too great. There's always time later on to tear myself free from all these earthly cares. If someone should be asked to make a complete break with a pet sin, tear even the last strand that still binds him, become free, and to surrender himself wholeheartedly to Christ, he thinks, alas, that is too difficult. It is impossible for me to make this sacrifice. That is demanding too much of me. Of a truth. That is how most people think who do not surrender completely to Christ. This is the main defense that Satan has erected to keep thousands upon thousands of souls imprisoned. Ah, what an outrageous lie Satan and his heart tell. To think that one believes that he loses everything by associating with Christ. Oh, what a fearful delusion. Nothing is lost, but much is won. Not only in heaven, but already here on earth. Solomon says, and experience confirms, the cheerful heart has a continual feast. Proverbs 15. However, one has a merry heart, a confident spirit, a pure, happy conscience, only if he turns completely to Christ and makes room for no other than the love and grace that Christ brings. Blessed is he who has finally conquered himself. He will then see that his honor was smoke, his wealth was a golden chain of slavery, and his joy in sin, 
a pleasant poison for his soul. In Christ, he again finds a thousandfold everything which he denied for his sake. Oh, that there might be none among us who, if he were previously deluded that it would cost too much to become Christ's possession, would remain in this delusion. In today's text, we find a warning example in Herod. He feared that in accepting Christ, he would lose his throne and be robbed of all his glory and joy. And so he persecuted him and murdered a great number of children just to kill Christ. Let us now consider. He did not kill Christ only, but himself, his soul, and his salvation. This horrible deed in greater detail is recorded for our warning and admonition, Matthew two, thirteen to 23 Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all the region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then he fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted, because they are no more. But when King Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead." And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. That what was spoken by the prophets might be filled, he shall be called a Nazarene. My friends, the text just read contains three events worthy of consideration. The flight of Christ into Egypt, the murder of the children in Bethlehem, and finally, the holy child's return to his homeland. Therefore, let us choose as the subject of this year's consideration the murder of the children at Bethlehem. We consider the unfortunate tool by whom this was done, the good reasons why God permitted it to happen, and finally, the important meaning that it still has for us. My friends, there have been and still are enemies of the Christian religion who claim that the murder of the children at Bethlehem is only a fable. They say that since Josephus, the Jewish historian who reports much of Herod's deeds and fate, does not mention the fact that this king also ordered the number of children in and about Bethlehem killed, it did not happen. It is self-understood that this does not confuse Christians. What they find in God's word, they consider more certain than if they had seen and heard it themselves. The reason why the enemies deny the truth of the story of the murder of the children at Bethlehem is stated in such a way that it must appear laughable even to an unbeliever. Is it not laughable to argue that because one writer mentions a fact about which another is silent, this fact is not true? 
We must mention that not only Matthew, but also a heathen historian, Macrobius by name, reports the story of the murder of these children. And if one knows but a little of the character and deeds of Herod and takes that into account, it becomes clear why Josephus mentions other facts from Herod's life but remains silent about the murder of the children in Bethlehem. In comparison with the many other atrocities perpetuated by Herod, Josephus considered this shameful deed scarcely, scarcely worth mentioning. When Christ was born at Bethlehem, the Jewish nation, as you know, was under Roman rule. The Romans had appointed Herod, surnamed the Great, as king in Palestine. True, by birth he was not a Jew, but an Edomite, that is, a descendant of Edom or Esau, the brother of Jacob. At least outwardly, and it seems, with a certain amount of conviction, Herod embraced the Jewish faith. This king, who according to our text was the unfortunate tool who caused the murder of the children of Bethlehem, is known in history as Herod the Great. However, his greatness consisted in nothing else than in great unheard of sins, yes, truly devilish outrages. At the time of his birth, at the birth of Christ, Herod had ruled for almost 36 years. He enlarged the temple at Jerusalem, making it a most splendid structure. Not only that, in order to please the Romans, he also profaned the holy city by heathenish idols and statues. During his whole reign, he was a suspicious, cruel, and bloodthirsty tyrant. If Herod merely suspected that anyone could become dangerous in any way, this person immediately died a violent death. Gradually, by his bloody commands, he put out of the way almost all of his relatives who could ascend the throne after his death. When his wife and sister showed sorrow over these deaths, they also fell victim to his bloodthirsty wrath. Yes, the wicked king even had three of his sons publicly executed when he doubted that they loved him. Even Caesar Augustus remarked that it was safer to be Herod's pig than his son. Josephus relates all this and adds that in the last years of his reign, Herod commanded that, besides many other people, his eldest son, Antipor, be murdered. After he learned that many expected a miracle-working king of the Jews, who had been predicted by the prophets. Now when we consider how inhuman Herod was, we cannot be surprised to hear what is also related in today's text. When the wise men from the east had revealed to him that a miraculous star had appeared, when by God's arrangement announced the newborn king of the Jews, Herod commanded them to go to Bethlehem, search diligently for the child, and when they found him, to report back so that Herod could come and worship him also. But with the suspicion of harboring a rival, dark thoughts of murder immediately arose in Herod's wicked heart. But the wise men, warned by God, had not returned. Herod called them deceivers, with whom perhaps the Bethlehemites had entered into a secret alliance against him. In order to kill that mysterious child whom he feared so greatly, he commanded that all the children in and about Bethlehem who were two years old and under be killed immediately. He, who with an untroubled mind could order the death of his own sister, his wife, and his sons, in addition to hundreds of others, was certainly even less troubled by the moaning of the poor little children and the heart-rending lamentation of their mothers. The death of this first pre-persecutor was as loathsome as his life. Scarcely had he ordered the murder of the children, then God sent him a hideous sickness, in which he was to have a warning of his fate in eternity, 
All the members of his body began to rot and swell. His whole body dripped with matter from which crept great numbers of loathsome worms. Still, he lived on, and one could scarcely see the places in his face where his eyes moved. At the same time, a putrid stench arose from his body. In this condition, the miserable king had himself carried in a sedan chair to Jericho to bathe in the warm water that is found nearby. Finally, Herod realized that he would not recover. Far be it, however, that his conscience should be awakened at least a little. On the contrary, it became very evident that God had visited him with the terrible fate of a hardened heart. What did he do now that he saw himself before the gates of a fearful enemy? He commanded that his most trusted soldiers be brought to him. Overwhelming them with gifts, he left them in charge of the execution of his last testament. Since he feared none in Judah would mourn his death, he had thought of a plan to cause the land to lament greatly even after his death. Herod's faithful soldiers were immediately to arrest the most distinguished of the kingdom. The moment Herod would die, they were to bury them alive as traitors. Shortly thereafter, the wretched king stabbed himself, and thus in silent despair he passed from temporal pain into eternal torment. Thus he departed from this world, who, in most devilish cruelty, had cold-bloodedly murdered a great number of children just to kill Christ. Permit me to show you now in the second place why God permitted the murder of the children at Bethlehem to take place. My friends, God's wisdom is so great that no person can guess all of God's reasons in letting evil or good, great or small things to happen. Certainly, it would be highly impertinent to want to name all the purposes for which God permitted that most terrible event which is related in our text to happen. In order that we can wonder at God's wisdom in this case, God himself has given us clear signs in his word in which we must seek the mysterious purposes of why he permitted this. We find first in Matthew, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted, because they are no more. We see from this that the martyr's death of the children at Bethlehem was clearly predicted by Jeremiah. It therefore is an unmistakable sign that the Christ child born in Bethlehem of the Virgin Mary is the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world. When Rachel, that is, the Jewish mothers living in Bethlehem, loudly lamented the bloody death of her dear children, she was a herald in tears that the awaited king of grace had arrived. Does someone ask, why did God predict Christ's coming through such a terrible sign? I answer, God could have chosen another sign and could have also made a different prediction. However, he also knew in advance that the fathers and mothers of Bethlehem would not accept the Holy Christ child, but push him out into a stall. They would not ask about him, and because of his humble appearance, would disown and reject him. God, therefore, decided to permit the cruel, inhuman tyrant to murder their children. God knew in advance that his son would soon be rejected. He also wanted to reveal quite soon what a great sin this is. If the inhabitants of Bethlehem did not wish to rejoice in the gracious Christ child, then they should weep and lament over the corpses of their own children at his righteous judgment. Another wonders, Of what were the poor children guilty that they must be sacrificed because of the malice of their parents? I answer, 
We cannot by nature reconcile ourselves to the inscrutable ways and the incomprehensible judgments of God. To our reason, it appears most unjust that God visits the sins of the fathers on the children until the third and fourth generation. But we must remember that such visitations of parental sins on the children is a dreadful punishment for parents, but not at all for the children. On the contrary, for the children, especially if they die early because of the sins of their parents, it is nothing but inexpressible, gracious kindness. Tell me, what did the children of Bethlehem lose that, even in their cradle, they died violently? How would they have been helped had they lived as long as their parents? Surely they would have to die anyhow. And must we then not fear that these poor murdered children would have been seduced to follow the sins of their parents? Must we not fear that if God had not taken these children away early in life, they would have rejected Christ, their Savior? Would they not now be lamenting eternally with their parents? What will they do now? Oh, certainly, someday in all eternity, we will hear those very children praise God that he killed them to become the first martyrs of Jesus Christ. Someday, we will hear them laud God that while they were, there was still time, he so graciously took them from the land of seduction into eternal security, from a life of sin into a life of perfection, from this world of misery into perfect glory and salvation. They lost nothing, but gained infinitely more. They were the first sheaves that were brought into the granary of heaven through the grace of the Savior who had now appeared. For Christ's sake, they had lost their earthly life. In return, they found their eternal heavenly life. Upon their short crying and sobs, there followed eternal laughing and rejoicing. After their short struggle, eternal rest and victory. They received an eternally radiant, unfading martyr's crown. There are still more reasons why we believe that God permitted the murder of the children at Bethlehem. God wanted to have men know that the Christ child is quite different from the other child, children of men. The holy child may be in great danger with other children. But through though hundreds of thousands of other children would not escape, God's watchful fatherly eye and his wonderful protecting hand over the Christ child should be most clearly seen. Although the most bloodthirsty tyrant of all should lay traps for him with such cunning that it appeared impossible for his bloody design to fail, all his cleverness to trap this child must nevertheless be foiled. Finally, God wanted to show the world, in the sudden death of the innocent children, the nature of the kingdom which the Savior would establish on earth. It would not be a kingdom of visible glory, but an invisible kingdom of the cross. Its subjects would suffer and struggle, and they would find eternal heavenly riches, grace, forgiveness of sins, righteousness, life, and salvation. This leads me in the third place to the important meaning that the murder of the children of Bethlehem has for us even today. We learn the important doctrine that if we want to remain with Christ, we must expect only the cross, persecution, misery, and death. As soon as we let the world know that our heart and mind lives in and around Bethlehem, we must be ready to find even now a Herod who lays traps for us. We must seal our confession with patient endurance, yes, with our blood. At the same time, we should learn from this story that to reject Christ out of fear of the cross, as the people of Bethlehem did, will not free us from suffering. Or, to say it another way, 
Our laughing here will be turned into eternal howling there. We, therefore, have the choice. Either suffer here with Christ like the children of Bethlehem and someday enter with them into glory, or first rejoice here without Christ like the fathers and mothers of Bethlehem and then weep with them. Yes, enter without Christ into the land of eternal tears. And still more. When Herod prepared the bloodbath in Bethlehem, he did not want to pass as a persecutor of the pious. He called the wise men deceivers and the Bethlehemites traitors. Let us turn from the procedure of Christ's enemies. If you are a Christian, do not hope that the world will admit that it hates and persecutes you for Christ's and the truth's sake. No, with all their unjust persecutions, they still pretend that they do you evil with every right that only because of your sins you are suffering as a scoundrel. My friends, the murder of the children of Bethlehem not only gives us earnest doctrine, but also rich comfort. It comforts us when God even today permits our dear children to suffer. He shows us that God wants to exalt himself through the suffering of our children. They also should become martyrs for Christ. They also should bear the cross after their Savior. They also should enter into glory through tribulation. If you stand at the sick bed of one of your little children and your weak heart is at the point of breaking because of their suffering, do not murmur against God. He, the most tender heavenly Father, loves your children more than you can. Just because he loves them, he lets them suffer so severely and bitterly here. Someday they are to reap much with joy. They must therefore sow here with many tears. Someday they should be most glorious. God therefore often submerges them here in great misery. Only wait. What causes your tears now will someday serve as an object of joy for you and them in eternity. Oh, therefore, say even at the bed of pain of your beloved children, My Jesus, as thou wilt, oh, may thy will be mine. How the suffering of the children of Bethlehem comforts us when we ourselves must suffer much here, when we are often assailed with the thought that God is angry with us. In those little children, we can clearly see that God often lays great suffering not only in wrath upon the unbelieving world to punish them for their sins. He also, out of love, lays suffering upon his own beloved children in order to glorify them. As certainly as the bloody death of those children was not a punishment, but a glorious deliverance, the greatest grace that God could show them, so dare also we believers in Christ not go astray concerning God's father love when he lays so many and such severe suffering upon us. The very ones whom God loves, he scourges and chastens. Those whom he someday wants to glorify, he first hurls into the heat of misery. Those whom he someday wishes to bring to the feast of victory, he first permits to struggle. Those whom he someday wishes to comfort eternally, he first permits to grieve. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Not sure what was there.
You've been listening to Classic Lutheran Preaching, CFW Walther. These sermons are available in two volumes as a part of Walther's Works, Concordia Publishing House, St. Louis, Missouri, cph.org. We thank you for tuning in, and we pray that God's Word has and will continue to be a great blessing in your life.